So how do you know which way the wind is blowing? Uh, we just finished up uh, golf season uh, for middle school golf. So I was coaching a team. And sometimes in golf, you're trying to figure out which direction the wind is blowing and how fast it's blowing. So how do you figure that out when you're out there in the middle of a course? Sometimes you can look at the trees. Sometimes there might be a flag that you can look at that you can see. Sometimes you just pick up a little bit of grass and then you throw it up in the air. And it has to be enough grass where you can see the blades. I mean, you can't just pick up like one blade. Typically, you can't just see a single blade floating around. But, you know, you throw it up and you're like, oh, it's going that way. So I need to adjust and move that way. Well, how do you know Jesus talks about it in John chapter 3? Well, we don't know which way the wind's going to go. I mean, we kind of do now, a couple thousand years later, with Doppler and, you know, scientific things. You can have an idea of where the wind's blowing, where you expect it to blow, how fast you expect it to blow. We've had a few windy days lately over the past few weeks, right, here in our area. But how do you know which way the Spirit's leading? I mean, because in John chapter 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. You know, the wind blows where it will, and you don't know exactly what it's going to do. The Spirit, similar, you, know, you can't tell the Spirit what to do. I mean, you can put up a giant wall, but that thing's just going to go right around it, right? I mean, you can try to stop it, you can try to mitigate it, but the Spirit is going to accomplish what He intends to accomplish. The wind's going to keep blowing, and you're not going to stop it. You might be able to, you know, hide behind a wall and not feel its effects as much. But when it comes to trying to discern where is the Spirit leading us, what is the Spirit doing, what would God have for us next, we ask ourselves, how can we tell? How can, how can, we, how can we discern what the Spirit is doing? Just like we're trying to discern in the physical realm what's the wind doing. And so we come across something like that in Acts chapter 13, where we find a movement of the Spirit in the early church in a particular direction. So Acts chapter 13, as we continue our journey through the book of Acts, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, but we're probably only really going to talk about the first few verses. And so maybe it'll just be a, uh, a good intro into next week. But there's enough, I think, for us in the first several verses that we can kind of lodge there for a while. So Acts chapter 13, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. How do you know which way the wind is blowing? How do you know which way the Spirit is moving? The work of God, this is going to be sort of our main idea point today. The work of God is accomplished through a church dependent on him. The work of God is accomplished through a church dependent on him. So in Acts chapter 13, um, just a bit of a side note here as we kind of get started walking through the first several verses. Notice that the prior verses at the end of chapter 12 might really probably should be a part of chapter 13 because John, Mark is mentioned and Barnabas and Saul are mentioned and that's kind of where we start off in chapter 13. And so maybe chapter 12 verses 24 and 25 should be a part of chapter 13. So as that side note goes, verses and chapter numbers aren't actually original to the text. So take that as you will whenever you're reading and studying. Don't be like, oh no, this is a different chapter. This is a whole different topic. Or hey, my Bible has this as a whole different section because there's a little pericope, you know, heading there. Well, sometimes those are good and sometimes they can be a little bit deceptive. But, you know, verses 24 and 25 of chapter 12 says, But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So we kind of had chapter 12 as a bit of an aside, right? And not just because Cole preached it, but because, you know, I mean, you had the story going through chapter 11, and then there was a bit of a, hey, now this is happening and let's tell you about Peter and kind of how Peter ends his time in the book of Acts for the most part. But at the end of chapter 11, it was Barnabas and Saul were going to Jerusalem to give money and provision from the church of Antioch to the church in Jerusalem. And then we have at the end of chapter 12, sort of them back on the scene and where we are in chapter 13, where it's Barnabas and Saul are coming back to Antioch because they have completed their task, their mission, to give that money to Jerusalem, spend time with the elders and church there, and then to come back. And they came back with John, who's also called Mark. That would be the same Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Now this also is Mark, who probably lived in Jerusalem and probably was an eyewitness himself to some things that happened in the Gospels. Um, He may not have been there for the whole thing, and he may not have been an actual disciple of Christ at the time. We don't know, but there you go. There's your aside for the day. Random facts to know about Scripture and our context. Now, chapter 13, verse 1. We're back in Antioch with Barnabas and Saul and apparently others. And says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So there were these prophets and teachers. Now these are not 
Prophet and teacher, they're not two distinct, mutually exclusive terms. Okay, They can go hand in hand. They can be together. Someone can be a prophet and a teacher. A prophet, to understand what a prophet is, and what a prophet is, especially maybe in the New Testament, many times in Scripture, a prophet foretells the future. And sometimes that's what you think of maybe just straight away offhand when you think about a prophet, someone who prophesies, someone who tells you what's going to happen. Nostradamus, right, is a total false prophet, like this bar Jesus we read about. You know, I mean, half of what he said didn't come true. And if what you say doesn't come true, then you're probably not a legitimate prophet. I mean, that's what Moses says in Deuteronomy 18. Look, if what you say doesn't come to pass, not nah, we should probably kill him because he's speaking as though he knows the Lord and is speaking on behalf of the Lord, but clearly the Lord wouldn't give him false information. And if he said something was going to happen and it doesn't happen, then he's not a, a true prophet. So sometimes we think of prophets as that, those who are foretelling the future. But maybe even more than that, in Scripture, prophets are ones, is a person who is directed with new or particular words from God in order to build up and direct the people of God. So a prophet is more so, oftentimes in Scripture, a person who is directed with new or particular words from God in order to build up and direct the people of God. It's basically said that a prophet speaks in response to a distinct moving of the Spirit. So a prophet's role is often temporary or intermittent because the Spirit isn't always moving in ways that we can see. Sometimes he is, sometimes he does. But oftentimes the role of a prophet, the gift of prophecy, is not a continuous, every time I talk, I'm prophesying. It's, hey, at certain points, the Lord gives me a word, and now I'm giving this word to whoever he's directing me to give it to. That's oftentimes what we see in prophets. We've already seen it earlier in Acts. Agabus said, hey, there's going to be a famine in the land. That's why Barnabas and Saul took money from the church of Antioch to Jerusalem. They said, hey, these people are going to be in need because there's a famine coming. And so they took the word of this prophet as truth and they acted upon it. God was using a prophet to care for his people. And that's often what he does. But a prophet's role is often temporary or intermittent. They, they kind of come and go oftentimes. Here's what Paul himself would have to say about the gift of prophecy from 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. Paul says about prophecy, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now, why is there such an emphasis on speaking in tongues in our area? I don't know. Why isn't there more of an emphasis on speaking prophecy? 
For some churches, there are. In some churches, they call their leaders prophets. Now, are they actually prophets? I don't know. Most of them, I haven't heard anything good and wonderful. I haven't been encouraged and built up. But maybe I'm just because I'm not a part of their church. I don't know. But we ought to be a people who maybe follow this admonition from Paul himself to say, hey, if we're going to desire spiritual gifts, why don't we desire for God to speak through us so that we can encourage and build up those around us in the church so that he would lead his people through us as his vessel And oftentimes I think that's what the role of a pastor can be and sometimes is. Is that role of of a prophet, of one who is leading the charge and saying, this is what the Lord says. But on the other hand, you have teachers, right? And so sometimes you have it just to where we already know what's been learned. We've already know what's been given to us. Now it's just a matter of helping those that are coming behind us or beside us to know and understand it well. That's the role of a teacher, right? I mean, you're not coming up with new stuff. You're not getting a new word from the Lord. You're saying, this is what the Lord has said. Now let me do what I can to help you to understand that so that you can live in light of that. And that's the role of a teacher. He declares, she declares what has been made known and helps others to understand what has already been made known. And so here we have in the church of Antioch, There were prophets who spoke new words and guidance from the Spirit that were meant for that church. And there were teachers who would explain the Old Testament and help these new Christians understand how to live as Christians. And it seems that these five men that were given were probably both. There were both prophets and teachers. I mean, what was a prophet to do if he didn't have a new word from the Spirit? I mean, then he could teach. He could teach what he's already been told. He could teach what God's people have already been given. He could say, hey, this is where we see Christ, like in Psalm 22 that we read. Like, wow, look at all the ways in which how Jesus died on the cross and in the time of his execution, how all these things came to pass how he didn't have any broken bones, how he said himself, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Identifying himself with that psalm. I mean, you would point out these things and say, what Jesus did, who Jesus was, was not some brand new idea that God came up with. wasn't plan B. He knew all along, and he spoke through the mouths of his people in the past to show us that God had this plan all along, and that Jesus Christ himself was the fulfillment of this plan. This is some of the things that these people would have been doing. Now, the identity of these men, Barnabas, we've already seen. He was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. He was an encourager. He went and found Saul and said, Saul, I need help. Come help me. Come help this church. You will be a great asset. And so we did. We've seen Barnabas. We have then the second one, Simeon, who is also called Niger. Um, Basically, the idea is this guy 
Niger just means black. I don't know. We've not told anything else about Simeon, except he's probably black. So I would think he's probably from Africa. Now we do know Lucius of Cyrene. Cyrene is African. So Lucius is from Africa. Um, and then Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. So he was probably, you know, if you watch, I learn what I learn from films. Um, and so I don't always learn the right things and I don't always learn stuff that is historically accurate and true. Um, I'm just more of a, I'd rather watch it visually than read it in a boring book, but that's just me. Maybe then it gives you the opportunity just to correct my misunderstandings and lack of information or true information. But when it comes to this guy, Manan, sometimes maybe you've seen, um, a movie with some royalty and sometimes the people, the kids, like princes, who are the royal kids, they need some friends to hang out with sometimes. Sometimes, you know, the movie's about, oh, I'm so lonely and I have no friends and, you know, let's find you a friend. Well, this guy, Manan, would have kind of been like one of those friends, is the idea. He would have probably grown up with Herod, Antipas, so that was the second uh, Herod in um, Cole's accounting that he gave us last week. So this would be the Herod who beheaded John the Baptist. This would be the Herod who was at the trial of Jesus and didn't do anything for Jesus, um, but was just like, oh, hey, you know, I finally get to see him. Hey, do me a magic trick. And Jesus didn't really do him any magic tricks. And so he's like, nah, fine, go die, right? Thanks a lot, Herod. But this would be the guy, Manan, in the church now, a leader, a prophet and teacher in the church at Antioch, who spent his time growing up with this Herod. Like he was almost part of the royal family. Maybe he wasn't actually part of it by bloodline, but he grew up with him. He was his friend. He grew up in all of the, you know, the fancy life that someone in that position in this time would have been subject to. He knew all the ins and outs of that life. It's probably where Luke, as he writes his gospel and this book of Acts, got a lot of information about Herod and about the Herods. Because this guy probably knew all that stuff. He grew up around it. He was part of that court. But it's someone who was, who had come out of that and believed the gospel. And then you have Saul. So you've kind of got a mix of different people here. These five men. Prophets and teachers. Their work was not for their individual glorification, but for building up the church. In verse 2, it says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. So who is they? Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Now, it starts, verse 1 says, now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. So is it talking about these five guys were worshiping and fasting or was it the whole church? And I would say, yes, both. I think the entire church was worshiping and fasting. I mean, maybe they were on some fancy pastor, you know, elder retreat, some prophet teacher retreat, and they were worshiping and fasting. I think it was all of them, the whole church. And I think the Holy Spirit directed one or some of probably one of these five guys, or maybe a couple of them, to understand that God had set apart Barnabas and Saul to a special work. 
And whoever received this special word, and it may have been more than one of them, then told it to the church. Because the direction and leading of the Spirit is not just for an individual, it's for the church. The individual serves the church, and the church serves the individual. Right? There's a, there's a symbiotic, really a synergetic relationship that ought to be happening. The Spirit of God delights to use his gifts for the growth of Christians and the growth of his local churches and the growth of the kingdom of God. Now, if you remember, God has already made it clear that Saul had been especially called by God at his conversion to carry the name of Christ to the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. That's what we find in chapter 8 at Saul's conversion. Whenever Saul's blind and he's just sitting there and he's like, oh, I'm going to fast for three days. In the middle of that, God comes to, you remember who? To go talk to Saul, Ananias. He goes to Ananias in a dream and he says, hey, Ananias, uh, I got this guy here, Saul. Yes, the same one who's been persecuting everybody. Uh, Don't be afraid of him. It's okay. I am going to show him how much he's going to suffer for my name. And I'm going to take him before kings and governors and children of Israel, the Gentiles. And he's going to carry my name to them. So this has already been told to us, and we're now probably, I don't know, maybe a dozen years removed from that. This has already been declared and made known to Saul, I would think. If Ananias heard about it, I would think he would have told Saul. Or maybe Saul's already known that because of his conversion and experience on that road to Damascus in the first place in chapter 8. So this was probably, shouldn't have been like brand new news that maybe one of them, like Saul, would be sent off to go and do a work like this. So the Spirit's like, hey guys, all right. Here's the deal. Set apart Barnabas and Saul. And that's all they say. That's all the Spirit says, right? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, what work? I mean, I would kind of think if I were in their shoes, I'd be like, okay, uh, do you want to give us any more specifics on that? And maybe they did. Maybe Luke just doesn't record it for us. But it kind of seems like... Uh, but what, what's their response? How do they actually respond? They don't say, hey, yeah, okay, tell us more. Well, maybe they do, because their response is verse 3. W- what do they do in response? Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so I don't know if this is these are two different episodes of worshiping and fasting and fasting and praying, or if this is just one long continuation of that same first episode, I kind of read it and think that these are two different times, that maybe there was some period there in between that lapsed of preparation of, hey, okay, um, we need to ask the Spirit for some more particular guidance on what this looks like, or discern, okay, When should we go? Where should we go? Who should we take with us? Is it only supposed to be us two? Are we allowed to bring someone with us? Can Mark go? Can he not go? 
you know, can we bring some other people? Uh, I don't know. But what you see them doing, I think, is continuing on a separate occasion. And maybe it's just continuing in the same way, in that same week, on that same day, fasting and praying. And so I don't know. It's usually not for me to try and split hairs and discerning which of those circumstances it was. If it was in the middle of a worship service and then they just kind of finished out the worship service of fasting and praying and worshiping. Um, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they're not just sitting back and waiting for God to direct them in some particular way. They're not saying, okay, Lord, thank you for that piece of information. We'll just continue on in what we've been doing. It's, okay, now that we've been given this directive, how can we continue to seek the face of the Lord as we already were in worshiping and fasting to continue fasting and praying to know what it looks like now? They are being faithful to what they know God has called them to, all the while remaining open for God to modify or change or bring specifics into view if he has something else for them to be involved in. That's where we see the church of Antioch. When we left them in chapter 11, this church was being a faithful church who was reaching out to their city and proclaiming the gospel boldly to Jews and Gentiles. That's why Barnabas was like, hey, I need help building up the disciples we have and continuing to reach out to the others around us. And in chapter 13, it's like you have God answering their prayer and saying, hey, well, you know what? You are doing this work here and there, but I want you to continue doing that work also elsewhere. They're not just sitting back and saying, Lord, would you use me? Oh, I just pray that you would use me. Oh, one day you'll use me. They're being used by God, and then all of a sudden, in the midst of them actively obeying the call that God has put on them, he speaks a new word into their life. And this isn't a different and really distinct word in the sense that all of a sudden they have to go off into left field. It's They're on the same path, just in a different place. They're being called to make disciples to proclaim the gospel just somewhere else. And the way that they've been doing it to Jews and Gentiles, now they're really going to go out and extend themselves to do it where they're really out of the boundaries that they've already been in. They were still dependent on the Spirit's leading to guide them. How often are we tempted to pray for God to move in our lives and we pray and we pray and we pray and then he moves and we just go about like business as usual? Or do we stop in those moments and thank God? Maybe they fasted because they, they said, Lord, we've been fasting wanting you to direct us and to knowing that we don't know everything, knowing that you have plans that are way beyond whatever we could hope or imagine, but we don't know what those are, and we want you to, to tell us and to direct us in that way. And then he gives them an answer, and then they're just like, okay, great, thanks. We'll move forward on our own with that. No, they say, 
the way that we depended on you and wanted you to speak to us in that first part, we continued to want you to be with us and direct us and to empower us throughout the rest of what you've called us to. We're not just neglecting you because you finally answered us, but how often do we get in that pattern of saying, God, would you do this? God, would you answer this? God, would you get me out of this situation that I'm in? God, would you answer this? And then he does something, and we're just like, oh, finally. And we forget all about him. And we're just like, oh, okay, glad that's over now. Now I can move on with my life. And God's just, uh, just yeah, I, don't know, I, I see God just sitting there being like, you're not going to like thank me at all? Or you're, you're not going to realize that you still have needs in your life? You're not going to recognize that that the point was more than just getting an answer to your issue and your concern? That the point is knowing me more? The, the, the point is that I am with you? That I do answer and that I do respond and, and that, I, that I am enough for you? That even if it's the answer that you don't want or doesn't resolve your problem, that me being with you is unsatisfactory in your mind? Do, do we continue to persistently ask him to reveal more of himself to us through fasting and prayer after he's already responded to our initial fasting and prayer? And I think part of the problem is that so many of us have, myself foremost, Part of the problem that so many of us have is that we make prayer or fasting or fasting and prayer or worship or service into a transactional affair. We say, hey, God, look at me and what I'm doing. Don't I deserve a little bit more grace in this particular area of my life? Hey, God, I've prayed for like seven days straight now, which is a lot for me, about this particular concern or problem. Isn't that enough for you to finally answer? It's often that we let our impatience and pride and weakness keep us from waiting for and earnestly desiring what is best. The Lord knows what is best. The Lord has a plan. The Spirit says in verse 2, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, if the Spirit has already called them, why have they not done it yet? Was this the Spirit's way of saying, Hey, church, I've already told Barnabas and Saul what to do, but they refuse to do it, so I need you to tell them to do it. Maybe they'll listen to you. I don't think so. I think God had a plan, but the particulars of that plan weren't fully delineated to all involved. It seems like God, in his providence, wanted to give us a picture of what a healthy church looks like. And it looks like the church at Antioch, a church that we saw in chapter 11, who was actively actively involved in reaching their community for Christ. A community of believers who were led by men of varying backgrounds and social status. A body of Christians who devoted themselves to following the commands of Christ as best they knew how For the glory of God. It seems like God wanted to bless a church that was obedient to the most prudent command of Christ as given before his ascension to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Spirit works for the church and through the church, not as its slave, but as its helper and guide to build it up and encourage it, to teach it and to correct it. And he uses his word to do that. What is this church teaching if not the works and words of God and his Christ? What is this church worshiping if not the person and work of God and his Christ? 
Who is this church praying to if not to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ through the power and work of the Holy Spirit? It is the mission of the church to send out workers, but we are not doing this work apart from God or without God. Luke 10.2, Jesus tells his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I wonder if that was the prayer of the church at Antioch. Lord, you have positioned us in this city with a ton of Gentiles and a lot of Jews, and we know that the harvest is plentiful when it comes to the Gentiles, but there aren't really any laborers over there in Cyprus. There are only maybe a few laborers that have traveled into Turkey and Greece and Italy. Lord, would you, who would you have go from among us to begin and extend the work of foreign missions? I wonder if that was a reason they were fasting and praying and worshiping. Lord, we lift your name on high. We bring glory to your name. But there are so many out there who don't know your name. So many who don't lift your name on high. We lift your name on high, but we want you to use us so that others would lift your name on high. So that others can hear and know that there is only one true God and that you have sent your only son, Jesus Christ, to bear the sins of the world, that he died to bear our sins and was raised to life to show that he has power over sin and death and that by believing in his name, turning from their sin and turning to Christ for forgiveness and wholeness, that they too can be granted salvation unto eternal life. Do you think that's a prayer that they had? Do you think that's why they were fasting? Do you think that was an emphasis in their time of worship? That they remembered how God had sent someone to them to preach the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ to them even while they were dead in their trespasses and sins. And now, just as they had repented and believed, that now God sought to use them to do the same thing with them on the other side of the conversation. I have to think that their fasting was for a purpose. That their prayers were not just generic that their worship was giving God the glory even in advance of the work that they knew he would continue to do in them and through them. I think these are some of the things that certainly they were praying and fasting for. I don't think that we just find them generally, generically fasting. Now, we do find times in the Old Testament and in the Gospels where People of Israel are told to fast, where they're called to fast for certain occasions, certain feasts. The Day of Atonement was one that all of Israel was supposed to fast on that day. And there were certain other times that the Pharisees, you know, you have that famous duality that Jesus gives of the Pharisee who is standing on the corner and saying, look at me, look at all that I am. You have them saying, well, fast twice a week. Fast twice a week, that's a lot. That might be one or two more times than I've ever fasted. You know, like that's, hey, that's some religious dedication. And he's saying, hey, look at what I'm doing. What purpose is he doing it for though? I mean, he's doing it so he can then stand on the corner and say, hey, look at me, I fast twice a week. He's not doing it for a purpose. And sometimes it's so easy for the people of God to do what he tells us to do with no particular 
thought or desire to it. With no understanding that, hey, maybe he's called me to do this because this is a better way to live. Hey, maybe he's called me to do this because it will help me in this moment take my eyes off of myself and put them on him. Hey, maybe in this moment, this act of fasting and praying will help me to recognize that just as God has forgiven me, I need to forgive that other person. And then I can't expect God to forgive me if I'm not willing to have that same heart. Oh God, I want your heart of forgiveness to be all pointed towards this guy. But when it comes to that guy, I don't think so. You know, just show your love in this direction. And God's saying, look, I'm not just about you. Like there's... There's more to this world, there's more to my creation than just you. And when we see fasting, as we read, as Brooke read in in Matthew chapter 6, it's not just if you fast, it's when you fast. Because it's when you give, starts there in Matthew 6. And when you give, don't just give to be seen by others. Don't just throw your money in the, in the pot so that people can hear it clang around and be like, oh, wow, that was a lot. It's a lot of change. Don't take out your giant wad of bills and start counting through them and be like, you know, and throw them in there. So that the person next to you who gets the, you know, little bowl next is like, wow, whoa, man. No, you I mean, we ought to be a people who give. And then he says, when you pray, this is how you should pray. And I think we're good about the whole giving thing and we're good about the whole praying thing, or at least I think we have a general idea of that, whether or not we are particularly good at that. I think that's up for the Lord to decide. And oftentimes I can't be the judge of that for you because I don't know how much you pray. I don't know what ways in which you pray. I don't know how much you give. I I don't know how that relates to how much you ought to be giving. That's between you and the Lord. And if I can help you in those, I would love to. Because if you're like, I don't don't know what I ought to to give. I I don't know how I ought to pray. I, I don't know if I'm praying in the right way. Like, I think anyone else in this room would would love to help you in that. I I would be the first one in that line to help you to learn and know how to do that well for you. But then it comes and he says, when you fast. And so some of us know or have an idea, hey, I should be giving, I should be praying, or I do give and I do pray. But we kind of leave off that third section there on the Sermon on the Mount. And say, oh, when you fast, well, that's for the, that's for the Pharisees. That that's for the religious, the really religious people. That's for the people who grew up doing it. That's for the people who have been shown how to do it in the past. That's for the people who can skip a meal easily. And we just kind of neglect it, and we say, nah, not for me, or. They say, yeah, but it doesn't seem like, Jesus, you ever really, like, command it and be like, 
you need to fast twice a year. Like, cause if you said that, then I would totally do it twice a year. Yeah. You know, I would, I would obey whatever directive that you had explicitly said, but you didn't explicitly say it like that, Jesus. And so I don't, I don't know that I'm supposed to do that. And fasting can be really painful. I mean, you know, throwing a chunk of change out of your wallet can be painful. Praying when you don't feel like praying can be painful. A prayer is usually not as difficult in that sense. It doesn't physically exhaust you. There's a dimension to fasting that brings us into the realm where the spiritual kind of meets the physical. That is unlike many other dimensions of discipleship. Where it says, hey, my body is the Lord's. And when I feel the agony in my stomach of not having something to resolve that gurgling that's happening and that pain of that tightening that, hey, we're not getting what we're used to. Like, that's frustrating. That's annoying. That's more painful than just throwing a few bucks in the offering plate. That That's more painful than setting apart two minutes to have a quick little prayer time with God in the morning. And so I wonder why we don't. I wonder why I don't. Because it's easy to, to throw it off into the realm of, oh, that's for, that's for when I like really need something. Fasting is, you know, it's like that, you know, last resort. Like I've tried everything else, nothing else has worked. And so now I need to, to reach into the bottom of the bag. I mean, pull out all the stops. God really hasn't answered my prayer yet. So this is what it's going to take now for me to fast. And I think if we treat it like that, we... are doing a disservice to the purpose that it, it ought to serve in our lives. Um, and so I want to encourage us to, to be a people who fast regularly, who make that a part of our discipleship, who say, I want to... I'm going to go along with the expectations that Jesus has for me. And if I truly read Matthew chapter 6 as it's written, it seems like there's a bit of an expectation for that to happen. When I read about all these instances in the early church and these different churches who are trying to discern the will of God, who are trying to seek after the face of God, who are trying to submit themselves to the work of God in their midst, that they are actively being a people, probably both individually and together, and in this instance, in Acts 13, together, fasting and praying, worshiping and fasting. And so, I think we ought to be a people who do that. And I think right now, especially where we are 
as a church, it just lends itself that much more. If that's even a proper way to think about it, which I'm not sure it really is, but I don't know. You know, where we're in a spot where it's, hey, like, God, we want to, we want to know that what we're doing is the right thing. God, we want to know that you are in this work that we are a part of. That we want to see you move in our midst in a way that we cannot do ourselves. That we need the Spirit to guide us. That we need some answers to the questions that we have. That there are some things coming up that if we don't get a direct leading from the Spirit, there's a chance we might make a wrong decision. And it might put us down a path that we don't want to be down, that, that is not going to be beneficial to this community. That's not going to be beneficial to the people here. And so, if we need a reason to fast to make us fast beyond the general expectation that we have from Christ in Matthew chapter 6 and the general witness of the early church and their continuation and continual fasting, it seems, and the way that the Spirit honors that, the way that Jesus said in Matthew 6 that the, your father who sees in secret, who sees you fasting, when you don't promote it in front of everybody else, but you do it because you know that you're trying to know God more, that, that you're trying to say to your own body, hey body, God is more important than food. Like, like bread is important, I know to you, but the word of God is that much more special. Like that, that we don't live alone by bread, the physical bread, but, but we live by the word of God. Like I, I want to be that guy. I want us to be those people. And we can tell ourselves that. That we can show our own bodies, which dictate so much of the decisions that we make in this world, that we have control over you, that we're not submissive to this, but we're submissive to God. And that we want to devote ourselves to, to hearing from him a new word, a fresh word, a, a discerning word. When we're, when we're given options on which way we ought to go, which way we can go. Lord, if this way is going to lead me down a path that is not going to be conducive for me sharing the gospel, for me proclaiming your word boldly, for, for us to, to grow better in community, then I don't want to go down that path. But, but if this path is going to do those things, then I, I need to know, because right now it seems like a 50-50 shot on what's supposed to happen, where we're supposed to go, what we're supposed to do. So 
with all that being said, I think it would be good if we tried to do this and we tried to do it together. Um, I don't think we have to, but I think it would be a good thing. And so, um, some of the thoughts that I had were maybe on a Sunday in the near future, whether it's next Sunday or another one, that maybe we could take a Sunday to fast and then do communion since we meet in the afternoons um, and take communion together and then have a meal afterwards to kind of break our fast together and just have a way to, hey, we got through it. Yay. You know, I mean, hey, our bodies can handle this. And to show that, hey, we're in this together and we've all been suffering physically for a purpose. Not just to do it, not just to be able to say, hey, look at us, you know, yay us, but to say, man, in this time, we've really devoted ourselves on this Sunday when we don't have to go to church in the morning, we don't have a service to go to, we don't have to wake up early, but we can say, hey, as I'm spending this day suffering physically, then I'm reminding myself and my body and my mind and my spirit that God is worth it. That we have concerns in our lives that, God, you're the only answer to. We have paths that we don't know which way to walk down and that, Lord, we need your direction and discernment. And so would you give it to us? So I think we can talk about it maybe after we, we sing our couple songs that we're about to do um, and try to come up with a plan on on how to do it and how to do it so that it honors the Lord and provides him an avenue to speak to us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. I know that um, it's hard to preach on stuff that I, I, that I myself don't, that I don't do, that, that I can't stand up here and act like this is the best thing ever because I've done it for so many years because I haven't but Lord you make it clear in your word and what better time to start than now if we haven't already to honor you and to follow you and so we do pray that you would lead us and that we wouldn't be doing religious acts like this just for the sake of religion but we would be doing it to know you more. We'd be doing it to see your spirit move in our hearts. We'd be doing it to see your spirit direct us in our steps as individuals, as a church. Lord, would you speak to us? Would you give us ears to hear? And would you give us boldness to walk in obedience? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.